0: Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Sheena Mason. Uh, Dr. Mason is the President and Co-Founder of Theory of Racialistness, which is basically, from what I can understand, what I've seen her speak about, it's a counter to the current diversity and inclusion, anti-racism stuff that's going on in the last few years. Hi, Dr. Mason, thank you for coming on.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So like I mentioned, you were the president and co-founder of the theory of racelessness, and I tried to give a brief summary of it, but if you wouldn't mind going a bit into what you guys are doing and like how it differs from, you know, let's just say Kimberly Crenshaw or Ibram Kendi uh, as examples.
1: Yeah. So um, I earned my doctorate from Howard university and the subject of my forthcoming book, started out as my dissertation and in that dissertation i focus on or i make the case for the fact that many people in academia specifically african-american literary studies are unintentionally upholding the problem of racism by upholding the idea of race and i present um, a skeptical eliminativist philosophical position of race and i argue that in order for society to truly be liberated from this thing called racism, we have to f- better recognize what the problem is, what racism is. And then we have to reject and renounce the idea of race in order to undo that said problem. Um, and so while coincidentally <laughs> theory of racistness acts as a sort of counter to traditional, uh, practices that are being called and dubbed anti-racist practices. Uh, My work, I see it as a standalone, separate coincidental thing really. Um, And I will say the skeptical eliminativist positionalities, I don't know if you want me to go into this at this juncture but there are six philosophies of race. We each hold two philosophies, one that speaks to what we think race is, and one that speaks to what we think should be done with race. And in American society, we're really, I think, programmed to be what, what's called a constructionist reconstructionist, which is to believe that race is a social construction, and then to constantly try to reconstruct the thing called race, which is where I see Abram X Kennedy falling, Kimberly Cremshaw, etc. Et cetera. Um, as a skeptical eliminativist, I argue that race does not exist. We are misnaming other things that do exist and calling it race or racial. And I also concede the fact that most people think race does exist. So to actually recognize and walk into our racelessness, there's something to be eliminated. So so racelessness speaks to both my skepticism, as in we're already raceless, and helping people recognize they're raceless, And then subsequently, now that we can come, we've come to that recognition, we have to, as a society, decide to eliminate the concept of race to undo racism and actually achieve racelessness.
0: So are you like more along the lines of like, uh, let's see, I think it's the books, racecraft. I think it's Barbara Fields. So are you more along the lines of that or like more like Camille Foster type of thing?
1: I don't see them as being separate. Um, not, I don't see too big, big of a distinction between the likes of Camille and Barbara and Karen Fields. Um, their book, Racecraft, there being Barbara and Karen Fields, their book, Racecraft, uh, I came upon it after I'd already written my dissertation and made all my arguments. And then I felt like it's a good resource for people to to look at to get a deeper understanding of some of the problems I'm pointing to. Because if if you know about skepticism and eliminativism and you read a book like RaceCraft, you can see that they are skeptical eliminativists. (laughs) Um, And so I, I do think that the comparison between some of the ideas I'm saying and the ideas of RaceCraft that they highlight in that book are helpful. And then Camille, I see, is also being aligned with that same type of
0: effort. Yeah, I mean I I, I shouldn't have made it too huge a distinction between Camille Foster and um and the Fields. Um it was just I was just trying to get that like <clears throat> something that you you know, because you're talking about getting away from race and that's one of the hypocrisies I see in like the you know, the candy version of anti racism. And if you go back to it, yes, it was I guess in the sixteen hundreds, a bunch of Europeans who were classifying everything and then you know, for lots of reasons, mainly being conquest and stuff, they decided to classify humans and started, and they came up with the idea of race, but instead of getting, you know, they fully, like, someone like Kendi will fully say that it's you know, white people that put this on us, or, you know, put the idea of race on the rest of the world on all non-white people, but it's like they want to embrace it even more. I'm like, if you're opposed to the idea that was forced upon you, why do you want to embrace it anymore? I mean, like that's one of the hypocrisies of people like Kendi that I struggle to try to figure out.
1: Yeah, it's because at this juncture, the idea of race and culture and ethnicity, which which have value in, in human society, are conflated. And so for a lot of people, when I start talking about theory of racistness, and, the, and that's at the core of my work is really just educating people about the philosophies, educating them about alternative philosophies and inviting them to participate in a skeptical eliminativist conversation as it pertains to racism to better identify the problem of racism. It's most difficult for people who have this web of, of meaningful happenings and meaningful parts of who a person is and how a person moves in society tangled up with uh, this conception of race. And a lot of that tangling comes from the fact that Black is understood at once to be race and culture and ethnicity. So a lot of um, African Americans in particular will tell you that when they think Black American, they're talking about they're talking about ethnicity. And then of course, culture is part of ethnicity and so on and so forth. But because the language, the word black itself comes from race, it existed of course, before it became codified in race, but because of that connection, I try to help people disentangle all of those meaningful things, you know, ethnicity and culture from the language that they're using to apply to themselves to help them see that it doesn't make sense to, if, if we are serious about liberating ourselves from the problem of racism, it doesn't make sense to take the same language that was used to your point and weaponized to disenfranchise and disempower certain um, groups of people and then now hold on to it, cling to it, harder than ever you know because we have this pride wrapped up in in that thing um and it's hard and to just to, to many people i get this question often or similar types of questions it's hard for many people to understand the the sort of illogic of it but if we really take a look at history and how the word black has been constantly under reconstruction it makes perfect sense. And that means that my task is that much more um, gargantuan because I have to help people do the emotional labor that's required to really get themselves out of the, the quagmire of race.
0: Yeah. I mean, something that you mentioned there, like when you talk about African-Americans and I mean, we, we use the term in Canada as well, which is kind of silly because, you know, it should be African-Canadian then not African-American, but um You know, it's other things too, like Asian um, or, you know, in the States, whatever, AAIP, like Asian American Island Pacific. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, that's like, that's such a broad term. I you know, Mm -hmm. I know people like, and I've used the term, I try to quantify it down a little bit and say South Asian, but even that, I mean, there's differences between um, even in India. I mean, there's, there's differences between Northern and Southern Indians and it's there, you know, there are distinct, like if you, go into like genetics and things like that. There are distinct genetics. Uh, it's like Razab Khan does a lot of work on, um, on like the genetics of, of different peoples, but he's done a lot on South Asian as well. And it's just, I mean, you, so at one point these, these classifications are just kind of, they don't tell you much about the person. Like it's, it's, it's such a broad and loose term. And then you kind of like pigeonhole everyone into it. Like I said, there's a lot of hypocrisy in this stuff that just bugs me because it's, but well, one of the biggest things is like making the primacy of, you know the color of your skin, or whatever, or like you know, I, I'm a South Asian, or I'm an Asian, and um, you know, then you have all the like the white adjacent garbage that goes along with it. <laughs> like that—that's the stuff. Like I said, that—that's some of the stuff in this, like the the, the current you know, vogue anti-racism. That like I said it. The, the, there's this shoving people into this identity when they're complaining about you know an identity that was you know, voice it upon them.
1: Yes. I really want to ask you about the the first thing you said. You said that the term African-American is used to describe Canadians.
0: Yeah. They use it. They use it on like on the news and things like that. They'll, they'll talk about African-Americans, even though we're in Canada, I guess they're using so, it like broadly as like North, North America. American. Yeah.
1: Right. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't know they have some, a few friends in Canada actually and it's never it's never come up Um, but yeah that's an interesting term is there a differentiator between an African-American and uh, somebody who immigrates from the continent of Africa in terms of how they're described
0: Uh, I mean I've I'd have to go into it but I think like some places I've seen like Afro-Canadian but Mm, mm -hmm. you know it just as like a a catch-all phrase instead of saying black they'll say like african-american right. um you know sometimes if they're talking they might specify a country if they're talking about someone like let's say it's um whatever something's happened like if there's a crime ha- that happened and you know either the victim or the perpetrators from somewhere so they you know they'll say like whatever um uh somali born let's just say for example um right um but yeah they they use the term african american it's, it's one of the problems up here is we we're so inundated with American media and news and everything that we take on a lot of that stuff up here, even though I mean there's always been a joke that the only thing Canadians are proud of is that we're not Americans, but at the same point we take on a lot of this stuff. <laughs>
1: that's fair I I, as as an American I see people from other countries all the time talking about Americans and how foolish we can be so
0: yeah but but I mean like I said but but we you know our government's adopted um you know whatever critical race theory or Kendi's version of Mm. anti-racism I mean it's we have a department of it we have a ministry of diversity and inclusion um it's you know, it's forming policy for us. And at the other side, our, we'll have our government say, oh, well, those people are just engaging in American politics. But I'm like, you're, you know, you're infusing American politics into Canadian government by including right. CRT. I
1: mean, right. it's, it's, it's a
0: wholly American, I mean, it came out of American legal scholarship. And so like, the, like I said, there, there's a lot of weird stuff in Canada. It's like, I think it's, we're even worse off than, than you guys are in the States with this right now.
1: Really? And, so, see, this is this is a um, one downside of studying primarily the United States um, and the Caribbean. But in terms of systemic racism, do you see that being true in Canada?
0: Okay, I mean, I don't. Legally, there are no laws. Lo- so like, I, I don't like that term again, because it's a little nebulous. And I mean, if you want to talk about something like Jim Crow, yes, that was systemic racism. If you want to talk about, I believe it was Arizona. I don't know if they still have it, where they could stop anyone and ask them for ID. Uh, if they were brown, just looking for illegal, uh, illegal aliens. That was, I think that law got passed about 10 years ago. Like, okay, that's, in my mind, that law in itself is a form of, if you want to call it about systemic racism, but there's a lot of talk of it. And it's just—I mean, it's the same thing. It's just, oh, here's a disparity. The disparities must be due to racism. There's racism in the system. Now, right. you know, granted, there was a lot of stuff that happened. Uh, you know, even up here to so like—I mean, the latest thing. Well, the one that caught a lot of uh, media recently was the residential schools because they started Ooh. unearthing all those graves. Um, I mean, and that was okay. Yes, that was systemic racism that was done by the government. You know, one of the. Backbones of the policy of the residential school was to kill the Indian and the child. Um, so, you know, like, like it wasn't a nice policy. Like, I'm not trying to defend it or anything here. It's just, but when you start talking about it, people just start, oh my God, it was racist. Like, you know, there was, it's like we're still flagellating ourselves. And they're like, oh, well, the last school closed in 94. And it's like, yeah, that's right. The last school closed in 94. But in 1971, when, they wanted, when the government wanted to school, close that school down, the first Nations went and asked to keep, have it kept open. And in 84, I believe or it was 81 or 84, the first Nations themselves took it over. So if you're going to talk about that school being open till 94, you should at least go back in the history of talk about why it was stayed open, why it stayed open till 94. So I mean that we talk about systemic racism here. it's kind of the same thing as in the states. It's you know this happened in the past, so therefore it's still happening now and i mean i don't want to discount the fact of something like jim crow and redlining how that will affect future generations like how you know it stopped it stopped wealth accumulation um, you know things like the gi bill that weren't fairly applied that stopped people from getting educations which stopped them from you know starting to accumulate wealth and building up you know generational wealth like there i mean like, i'm not discounting that but to say that it's canada's a wholly systemic racist place Even like, you know, they say the United States is a wholly systemic racist place. I just, I find that false. I I don't, disparities are wrong, but it's not just, it's, it's kind of counterproductive to just focus on one thing when actually trying to, instead of trying to figure out what is causing that disparity.
1: Yeah, that's my biggest, one of my biggest points of contention with how people continue to talk about the problem of racism in the States is it, it's, very much done in a black and white, pun intended, way, which precludes more people from better seeing the problem, which then precludes us from actually solving problems, whether it's racism or whether it's something else. And I actually, you know, I'm, I'm constantly persistently on a quest for what I call capital T truth. And it's reflected in my podcast my own podcast library on youtube because recently i had a conversation with charles love who's the author of this book race crazy which comes out next week and he gave me some statistics that i went and did research looked it up you know for myself came to the conclusion that he was right he wasn't misleading me and i felt like my eyes were open it was a really pivotal pivotal moment for me and then Yesterday I released a podcast I had done a few weeks probably at least a month before I met him and in that podcast I talk about how when I think of racism and I think of specifically if I'm going to call it systemic racism I I think of the disproportionate number of racialized black people who are impoverished in the United States. And I think about things like mass incarceration or the achievement gap. I think about those things. And I think about like, those are the kinds of problems and the societal ills that I want to help solve instead of unintentionally or intentionally upholding. And something that I didn't know at that time was about specific numbers and data and <laughs> information, I might have even mentioned. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm struggling to re- to remember if I mentioned police violence, but it might that might have been something I put out there. But it's like even just in the four weeks since I did that podcast. I learned all this other information that really dispelled a lot of the ideas that I had. And it was hard, right? Because I think for many people it's hard to be wrong, first of all. And then it's hard to admit and acknowledge that one is wrong for some people. And it's not the that's not the case for me. Like I I know that I can't know everything at, at one time and yada yada yada. And so what's the point of always trying to learn if I'm unwilling to recognize when my ideas need to grow right but the ways in which i've experienced this growth in the last 10 days in particular have been mind-blowing for me because i it's not that i think i think racism is systemic but i define racism very differently from pretty much everyone um i define racism as believing that human beings are born into distinct categories separate from each other. Um, and from my take, race itself is the hierarchy race and racism are the same. It's synonymous. And the reason why many people stay in the quagmire of racism is because of this masquerading of racism as race, which is, which is where the Barbara and Karen Fields idea of racecraft comes in handy. And, The masquerading of racism as race then precludes it encourages us to be race crazy or obsessed with race and and color, which is a proxy for race, and then prevents us from seeing the problems more clearly. And I've really come, I've really come to recognize how that is the ultimate problem that I'm trying to solve in all of my endeavors and all of my work is this persistent belief in the idea of race which then actually creates the division. Many anti-racists say they want to dispel, as you said. Um, I think the word you used a couple of times was hypocritical. It's like, it is hypocritical, but I think that they're not being disingenuous in their effort to actually solve the problem, but we can't really solve the problem because we're misnaming it and falling into the trap of believing in the apparition of race. Right. So anyway, that was a lot, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, it's good. Like, okay. The whole, yeah. Like the whole idea of race. Um, And again, from my, on on my side of things, I, it was only after I started reading this, like, you know, I didn't, I'm not an academic and I didn't have to read, you know, I read some postmodernism, post postcolonialism when I was in university. It was like the early nineties, but you know, I, I didn't have to read critical race theory or anything like that. So only was after I started reading it and then started looking into the scholarship and I'm like, okay, so in my mind, I mean like the shift happened, you know, somewhere between 95 and 98 where like the academy kind of flipped going from, you know, like the ethic of colorblindness where you don't put any significance on you know, the color of someone's skin or anything like that to then a more identity-based politics. And so I'll be like, I can see this stuff growing and I can see like the ripple effects it's had since then. It's just, you know, like that Microsoft commercial the other day or whatever, that thing they put out where, you know, it wasn't enough to mention her race. She's talking about like what she's wearing and her gender and like all of them were doing that. It's like, I'm like, like how, you know, like that kind of categorization is just, I mean, it, it, at that point, I mean, it went past race, but I mean, like to, to categorize yourself like that and to try to pigeonhole everyone into that little, you know, t- to think of themselves like that. It's, it's, you know, it, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Like to, to, to list off like that little knee of things, like, do I have to introduce myself as a Indo Arab Canadian, you know, with brown skin and I'm like cis gendered like it, it's ridiculous.
1: Do you know do you know why they that happened though? Do you know why they're doing it?
0: Well, they said they're doing it for visually impaired people, but Yes,
1: that's right. That's right. That's right. So I participated, so I'm an assistant professor, right? So I had to do job talks and all that last um spring, last semester. And I also went to some job talks because my the institution I graduated from was was hiring and so job talks are open to the public so I I remember I went to all four only one of them actually did this thing but that person said you know I'm a black woman with I don't know like medium length curly um or no it was dreadlocks and I wear, I'm i wearing glasses and uh, this and other thing and I remember thinking I, it was the first time I saw that happening. This was like six months ago, at least. And I was confused. Cause I was like, what is this? And I didn't, I couldn't decide for myself if I was like on board with it or not. And I remember I asked my mentor who was the, um, the Dean of the graduate school at Howard. I asked her about it afterwards. And, um, and, and then I was made aware of like, that it was it was for people who don't who couldn't who can't see her and I was like I was like oh and then it made sense to me and I was like you know what that's smart and the same the same candidate stood out because she she thought of people who might not be able to see her she had subtitles nobody else had subtitles and it was like she did she literally did everything right she sent a script in advance like I learned from that person what to do because because I was just I was impressed and even though at first I was taken aback once I heard the reason I was like oh that makes sense so I saw on Twitter the example you're talking about circulating as if this is a new practice which is clearly not because I witnessed it several months ago almost a year now and um and I wanted to say something to the you know just I wanted to tweet something and be like, well, actually this is for fill in the blank reason, but I didn't feel like getting into a Twitter war at the time. So I decided to forego and just let, you know, let somebody else say something if they were going to say something.
0: Um, I can can kind of get that. Like, here's where my issue with something like that is though. Now I understand. Okay. If you're one-on-one and you're trying to, describe yourself or something I guess but if you're giving a talk like that my problem with that lies is like if if I'm listening to people give a talk okay I want to hear what they're saying and I want to hear their ideas and okay maybe this is just me personally but like I, I really could care less about you know I'm this 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 and this so in my mind like starting off from that basis saying like here's like that doesn't give your ideas any validity and it like if it's if it's a discussion about ideas it's a, you know it's a, a public talk or whatever it should be your words and the content of what you're saying is what should matter not you know a list of immutable characteristics
1: Sure, but you're but I feel like that also devalues the benefit that people who are visually impaired who can't see the thing would actually get from it, right? Like we're speaking from a place of of being able to see or if we if we go to a podcast mm-hmm. like yours, it's audio only right so it does then it really doesn't matter what we look like because people can't see us, so it would really be foolish for us to be like, "I look like this because you know it's an audio only podcast, but if it's something if it's some kind of um, video or in-person event, I can see the benefit. And I, I'm mind you, I, I haven't asked, I don't have actually many vi- visually impaired friends, so I don't have anyone to ask, like, does this matter to you or doesn't it? But I feel like just because it doesn't, just because it doesn't vibe with you doesn't mean that it doesn't help somebody else, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, okay, I, I can respect that. But again, <sighs> and maybe this is just me being like too biased because on the same side, so coming from the, not just the race, you know, the, the anti-racism, like the you know, quote unquote woke, like I, or the critical social justice. If you listen to them talk about disabilities, I mean, and this is when there are papers about this, you know, like if you cure someone of their deafness or if you come out with a cure for deafness and you can fix like everyone who's deaf who wants to now be hearing can be hearing and, you know, will no longer be deaf. Like they've actually literally said that's a genocide on the deaf identity. So like I like, so when they start off with the land and acknowledgement and all the other stuff. So I see that whole thing wrapped up in that. And that's where I guess that's where my issue with it starts. But then, like I said, the other point is you're, you're giving more weight on the identity of the person than what they're thinking and talking about and how they're thinking so that that that's where maybe you know just instinctively i'm kind of get my hackles up when i hear that now because of maybe i've read too much of it and i'm you know like overexposed or something i don't know
1: yeah i i mean it's not that i um disagree with your fundamental point which is that how any of us looks should be beside the point right and and not even just how one looks but how one identifies right if uh because One thing I took, I took note of the candidate I mentioned earlier, who did end up getting the job, I took note of how she described herself, and I felt like, I was like, this is um, impressive, I'm definitely going to do this, but I'm not going to describe myself as quote-unquote Black, because then I'm just being a hypocrite because I'm doing a whole talk about how hold upholding race ideology <laughs> is upholding racism and all this other stuff. Right. And it, I don't actually identify with the term because I don't identify with racism, etc. So I didn't, I didn't describe myself as a quote unquote black woman as this um, candidate did for all of the reasons that you described. And I I it, I feel like I feel like all parties have something are saying something of value that if more people were just willing to hear each other out and listen to each other we could get to the to the grayness and we could get to the in-betweenness that exists for most of these parts of the d- discussion but because too many people are knee jerk responding to what they're maybe misperceiving or misunderstanding. But also, you know, from my perspective, I would be up in a tizzy all day, every day because people are constantly what one could call like race explaining constantly. It's just so constant, persistent. People are constantly trying to put each other in boxes based on the unicorn of race And or gender or class or education or anything, you know, constantly trying to put each other in these boxes. And I'm like, hold up. Time out. Wait a minute. Why? Why can't we have a civil discussion about the thing that's happening as opposed to just automatically discounting it as if it doesn't give value to anyone out there in the world just because we don't see value in it, you know? And I feel like that's part of my work at theory of racistness because once you're able to step outside of the boundaries of 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 black and white of, of race in a lot of ways then it i have witnessed it become true that people are more readily able and inspired to see through other labels too you know like democrat or republican i actually don't know what the um how politics work and in, works in canada, in canada but um you know better able to see through the labels and actually see find value in what every person has to say regardless of the label you know
0: yeah i mean I, I, the labeling thing it's just, like, like what one thing about that is you know the like this is what I worry about when we, when they're focusing too much on these labels. So um, like you had like what I consider a really obscene example was uh, Michael Dyson, Michael Eric Dyson the other night with Joy Reid. Oh talking, yes. And, you know, oh. Okay. But like that idea of whiteness and stuff, like, like when you're foisting this on kids and it's, I mean, it, now it's, you know it's, it's apparent that it's in like K through 12 in a lot of places, uh, even up here. I'm like, you know, the white identity, I guess, if you want to call it that, or whiteness or whatever, again, that's purely maybe an American artifice or, you know, wherever colonialism was. So, like, you know, places like Canada, the United States, Australia, or whatever, maybe it's an artifice from there. Because if you can look into Europe, like even the Scandinavian countries, you'll have um, uh, S- Sweden and Norway, like they're all scandinavian people but there's some you know they'll they'll take jabs at each other right and they'll consider themselves either swedish or norwegian they won't consider themselves you know quote-unquote white like it's not a white things like the same way i think like you know you have black being an american artifice like white as well and so you know when he's saying oh they're the mouthpieces for white supremacy and stuff like that it's like that whole idea of taking on whiteness i mean there was a conference in canada last so july of 2020 and it was brown complicity and white supremacy and how brown people are taking on whiteness and i'm like it was, it was pretty gross Ugh, that sounds <laughs> gross
1: <laughs> sounds gross
0: okay but i mean it, it comes down to some of the interest convergence stuff so it was coming down to basically if brown people take jobs away from black people that lets white people be racist towards black people and say, see, we're not racist, we hire brown people. So brown people are helping being complicit in white supremacy. I and mean, that was that was part of it, but it, it, it goes much mm. further. I mean, it's like I said, it's awful.
1: Yeah, I I'm so looking forward. I, I'm sure you probably saw that Michael Eric Dyson and um, Glenn Lowry were on the Bill Maher, Maher show last night and i'm waiting for some of the playbacks to come on bill's youtube channel because i want to see that conversation um yeah because i saw the the joy Reid clip with michael eric dyson and i also saw winsome sears talk on fox news and basically challenge not in a you know adversarial type of way but challenge joy reed to a conversation she's like i would love to be on your show to talk to talk with you um but yeah it's this idea of quote unquote taking on whiteness or white ideas as michael eric dyson calls it or um essentially black faces spouting white supremacy it's it's not only it's it's problematic for so many reasons including the fact that including the fact that there's this per- pernicious policing of who and how one is based on the race that society gives the- gives you and it is this it's so ironic because if we listen to some of the anti-racist rhetoric people will express ideas such as blackness is expansive and freeing and it's everything at once and it's it's nothing that so-called white people try to make it but in the same breath call a racialized black person or racialized brown person racialized anything person non-white a white supremacist based off the simple fact that their political beliefs aren't liberal or progressive or Democrat. And it's like, or, or the same thing happens based on the kind of music one listens to or how a person dress. There's this idea of talking white, you know, now in American society, I hope for your sake, this isn't happening in Canada, but in American society, there's this idea that math is racist because
0: it's 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 happening up here i mean it's oh my god and but okay but then if you listen if you ever seen nicole hannah jones sometimes talk about it and she's not the only one when you mention the fact that you know what we use arabic numerals that came from india um you know and then they'll switch it on oh well then that's just being appropriated by white people and so they'll play both sides of it (laughs) um But yeah, I mean, like the the whole idea of like, you know, acting white, there's actually a, there's two books called Acting White. Uh, One of them I haven't read and it's supposedly fairly good, but the other one came out in 2013 and the prologue is about how the Obamas were white and how they acted white and you shouldn't act white. And it's, I mean, it basically sounded to me like if you were listening to, you know, a real racist from the seventies or whatever, talking about uppity black people it's exactly what like how they would describe you know quote-unquote an uppity black person was how this book acting white and it's by galato and karate or something like that how they were describing acting white when black people act white and whatever it like i said it, it reminded me of a racist talking about being uppity and it's it, I'm like i just couldn't get my pa- my mind passed you know like this got published these people are academics and they're helping form curriculum. I was thinking, you know, I'm like, "Yo, what's going on here?
1: Yeah. It's, um, have you watched the Colin Kaepernick, or no, I think it's called Colin in Black and White
0: I, Colin Kaepernick. The, I, I saw the ad for, no, I haven't seen that on Netflix. I, I don't think I will.
1: <sighs> so I, <laughs> I was resisting at first as well because I saw, so a couple of the worst parts of it being, you know, lambasted on Twitter. And uh, but I was like, you know, true and true Dr. Mason fashion. I was like, let me watch it. Let me watch the thing that people are lambasting. And in the series, Colin Kaepernick talks about how two characters, uh, Steve Urkel and Carlton Banks. from 90s sitcoms were were basically made for white people to make to help make white people more comfortable because they were translation they were essentially acting white Um, and again it's this nonsensical idea that to be racialized fill in the blank is to be Essentialized appropriately in all of these really problematic ways, and I, it's it's in large part a lot of my evidence for why the idea of race is nonsensical in the first place, how racism masquerades as race, and why we need to get rid of it, because so long as we keep holding on to the idea, it's going to keep operating racistly in our society and it's going to keep putting people in boxes um and i think it's wrong and i think it's divisive i think it you know where there's not systemic racism i think it creates racism and um i'm hoping that more and more people will start to Amplify their voices and speak out in ways, especially other academics like myself, um, speak out against the current practices, not because we're, quote unquote, not okay with talking about or teaching about the problem of racism, but because the way we're trying to solve racism is creating racism, is upholding and perpetuating racism.
0: So, yeah, okay. I mean, like that's one like what you mentioned there. That's one of my biggest worries. And so when I got back from overseas in 2014 and, you know, we'd mentioned you no know, being called a white supremacist, if you're not white, like I was called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam. And I just come back from working in Afghanistan and, you know, and, okay. And I come from a Muslim background. I have a Muslim family. You know, so I was criticizing aspects of Islam. And I was like, I wanted to wonder where that came from. But then when I started looking at it and I started seeing it more and more in schools, I was like, you're going for an overcorrection. Like you're going to get people focusing on their race, you know, and if you look at whatever, the United States, if you just want to take it there, I mean, like in a majority white country where there's more than one gun per person, you want to divide everyone according to race and create division. I mean, it's, I was just like, yo, you're going to get that overcorrection. I was afraid, you know, I thought maybe Charlottesville was that overcorrection and that it would snap people out of it, but it didn't. Um, And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I'm just like, when you read about something like the Dalton school in New York city, where they took kids from grade three to grade eight for 45 minutes a week. And they split them up into affinity groups and they told all the racial groups, how they were oppressed by white people and what the good things that their race has done. And then they took white kids and they told them how they were all evil and how their race has oppressed people. And, you know, within a matter of you know five or six sessions like this, like I said, it was forty-five minutes a week. You had little kids spouting out white, like white nationalist rhetoric, or or you know, like you know, like the extreme, like the Black Panthers and stuff like that. And this is, you know, like I said, third graders. And I'm just like, how is that helping anyone? How is that? How is that going to produce healthy adults that are going to be able to produce a good society? Like it just, like, like that. That's where my biggest fear of this stuff is like that overcorrection that's going to come
1: absolutely i was i can't remember who told me this but recently somebody said that there was some kind of poll um, done in I, I want to say 2016 something like that a few years ago that asked people if they identified strongly with their so-called race, and it was at the at the time of the first poll, it was something like thirteen percent of racialized white people identified strongly with their so-called race. And the person who was telling me this was saying that that thirteen percent was largely the 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 far extreme, you know, actual white supremacists, KKK, Proud Boys, you know, white nationalists, all of that not people you would probably want to be friends with for most people. But that same poll was done again, I guess this year, maybe last year. And that number had doubled to be something more like 25 or 26%. And from their view that doubling was an indicating what you're saying and, and saying that you're worried about is that basically in an attempt to correct racism or quote-unquote solve racism, they've overcorrected to the point where now increasingly racialized white people are coming to see their quote-unquote whiteness as part of their identity, which is probably not what many people want to actually happen if we really think about this and think about not so far ago history you know probably we don't want white people to identify them strong so strongly as white
0: well i mean if i can find it i'll send it to you but the american psychology association or whatever the apa they put out a study something similar like that but they were focusing on children and it was across the board but where there had not really been uh, you know, white identity among white kids. You're starting to see it grow more and more, and like the like you know, other groups, like where there was black or Latino or you know whatever Asian, like all the other kind, of, it was growing in there as well. But it was growing faster among the white kids. And again, yeah, like I'm saying, like you don't want that. You 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 need to go back to that mindset of, yeah, you know whatever. I notice the color of your skin, but I don't put any significance on it whatsoever. You know, like if we're doing business, we're friends. We're we're going out. Or what you know, like? It, there there should be no social significance attached to that. It, but it's not like you completely ignore what's right in front of your face.
1: Right. And that what's, importantly, it's teaching people that what's right in front of your face is not race. We imagine it to be race because that's how we're taught, but race is not biological. So race has absolutely nothing to do with why a person's skin tone is what it is, or their hair texture is what it is, or whatever other, what any other stereotypical feature of a so-called racialized group might be. That, those characteristics, biology, DNA, ancestry, that's we're pointing to ethnicity and there are countless ethnic groups in the entire world. So, so that genetically speaking, there are people on the continent of Africa who are genetically more different from each other than they are compared to anyone else in the world. And I have to imagine that if that's the case, then it comp- it should completely dispel the idea that noticing somebody's skin color or noticing hair texture or noticing anything about a person physically that that means that we have to acknowledge and uphold the concept of race because the concept of race is nonsensical. It's pseudoscientific. It's not rooted in nature or biology. That's something else. And so, um, I think it's, it's a fallacy that gets promoted by a lot of the the big names that we've already, um, referenced. And it's really because, again, people are conflating ethnicity, culture, race, all of the things all together, and then using that as an excuse intentionally or otherwise to uphold the problem of racism. You know, I see people do this to to me on Twitter all the time to say, well, you know, children notice um, the race of their they notice the skin color, how their parents look. And so then they gravitate toward people who look like their parents. Okay. But that's still not race. Like, you're still not talking about race. They don't notice race because we teach them race. So that's still not race. It's not an excuse to continue adding fuel to the fire. Um, <laughs> if you can't tell, I'm passionate about that aspect Uh-oh. of it too, because people bring it up all the time. And I'm like, do your research. Race is not biological. So we can get, dispel the notion of race and still see and acknowledge the fact that people look differently.
0: Like the hyper focus on it. You, you, you get away from everything else. Um, again, going back to schools because I, I, mean, I, I don't have kids or anything, but I still think the fact that what's going on in education is really bad. And I'm kind of selfish about this because when I'm an old man and I need a doctor or anything like that, I want them to be well educated, not worried about the color of my skin. Um, you know, but when I, I I look at that, like, I'm just, I'm just appalled. Like why d- I look at some of the work, like there's that one book that I think there's a lawsuit in Evanston, Illinois about it, but it's been in a few other places called, um, uh, not my idea. And there's a contract in the book. That's a contract with whiteness and it costs you your soul. And I'm like, like, I'm like, why are you teaching this to kids? Like, what what is the point <laughs> of that?
1: It's so <laughs> it, it seems so clear to you and I and others um, who are able to see through the smoke how counterproductive all of this is. But it's like the people who are really pushing this type of agenda genuinely think it's the solution, and then that then it just becomes a sort of battle of of wills, right? Because I have learned that as, as I can put all of the evidence I have in my brain that I've accumulated over years and years and years of research and observations and experience and all the things I could present some people with all of it. And they will still insist on clinging to the idea of race. They will still insist on it. And I think because it's easy for, for some folks to talk about logic and illogic as we see it playing out in society but we also have to remember that people's emotions or feelings are in this, and human beings are emotional beings. We act on emotion more often than we act on, on logic. And that being said, that's, that's the aspect of all of this that bec- makes it more challenging, makes it a mountain truly that we have to climb together slowly because people's people really feel, <laughs> they really feel that they're right. And they've done research in such a way that confirms what they already think and what they already believe. And when you think a certain way, you more often than not, when you come across evidence that could dispel some of your ideas, you're looking at it with skepticism already because you you already think a certain way. So it's like, no matter what, you're just constantly in the quagmire and in the wheelhouse of confirming your own biases and confirming your own ideas, so that whenever somebody does come out and say no, it's easy to quickly dismiss those people as white supremacist or you know whatever racist, anti-black, all the name names that pe- they've come up with, because all of a sudden the core of your heart, not your head you feel that it's in danger and this is this is emotional and spiritual work for people and it's it's hard
0: yeah i don't want to keep you too much longer but when you mentioned the spiritual side of it it's i mean i know a lot of people have written about it like a john recorder's latest book is about how you know like how this is kind of like a religion it's how it's quasi-religious and then um I know like Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay have written about that as well, but that's one of the first things that struck me about this was how religious this stuff was like how, <clears throat> you know, you had blasphemy laws. You, you, the same apologetics I get from, you know, hardcore Muslims when I bring up things like, okay, you know, Islam didn't get rid of slavery It only got rid of slavery for Muslims, but you could enslave any non-Muslim. Um, you know the same kind of pushback, the same kind of excuses. I see the same stuff coming from these people, and it's almost a religious fervor. Like, the, like it's, it's like you're attacking. You know their most held beliefs, and again, I see a lot of the people coming, like especially in universities and stuff. Now I'm, you know, like worried about people coming out of high schools and things, and I equate them to new converts to Islam because the the new converts to Islam were always especially in the first couple of years, they had to prove how pious they were. So they were more fundamentalist than someone who'd been born into a Muslim family. Who'd been a Muslim their whole life. And like, I I see so many parallels, how this stuff is a religion.
1: Yeah, I agree. And then that, that tells us a lot about what we need to know in terms of how we can, how can we surmount this and, and go together in a, more productive way.
0: Well, that's my thing. It's like I'm like, let's stop it in schools. So <clears throat> we stop the converts. Because it's a lot easier to stop someone converting than it is to, you know, once they've converted to to like deconvert them. You know, it's it's a lot easier to stop someone from joining a cult than it is to break them out of the cult. Mm.
1: True. Fair yeah. enough.
0: Yeah. like I said, I don't want to keep you much longer, but if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, uh you know, tell them where they can get a hold of you. Like if they want to find out more about theory of racelessness, um, I'll put all the links in the, in the description. Please go ahead.
1: Sure. Thank you. So um, theory of is my website. You can also find me on YouTube. If you just look for Sheena Mason, my podcast is there. I have an entire library explaining and talking with people about theory of racistness and my work, Um, The link to my podcast is also on the website, right.
0: Well, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.